0: Black Lives Matter. Black Health Matter. Healthcare Untold.
1: Good afternoon, I'm Barbara Ann Garcia, healthcare advocate, strong woman athlete, and the host of Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold is a podcast that is dedicated to giving voice to everyday heroes. You will hear their untold health stories that improve healthcare to our most vulnerable communities. Today, we have Dr. Sandra Hernandez with us. Dr. Sandra Hernandez is a renowned national healthcare leader and advocate. She has served on many national, state, and local health initiatives that are dedicated to improving health and healthcare access. Dr. Hernandez is presently the President, CEO, of the California Healthcare Foundation. The California Healthcare Foundation is dedicated to advancing improvements to healthcare, particularly to vulnerable communities. As a practicing physician, Dr. Hernandez was a provider for the most vulnerable populations, as well as serving as the health director in San Francisco and an assistant clinical professor at UCSF School of Medicine. Dr. Hernandez is a graduate of Yale University and the Tufts School of Medicine. I'm so proud to consider Dr. Hernandez as a great friend and colleague and hoping that Dr. Hernandez will continue to be a returning guest with us on Healthcare Untold. So welcome, Dr. Hernandez, to Healthcare Untold.
0: Thank you, Barbara. It's a real honor to be here. Looking forward to talking with you.
1: So I thought we could start by you telling us a bit more of your background and what brought you into the healthcare field.
0: Well, um, I grew up um, uh, on the Mexico-US border. My grandparents um, came here when they were looking for braceros and people to work, and um, my grandparents um, uh, uh, established their families in these small little railroad towns in southern New Mexico. And so I grew up um, really in very rural areas where... um, If you needed some kind of medical care, you either had to go to El Paso or you had to go to Tucson or you had to go someplace to be able to get it, whether that was regular primary care for chronic disease or whether you had an accident or the like, there was just no regular source of care. Um, You know, you grew up with grandparents who, you know, if you have a burn, they put aloe vera on you, and there's a lot of, you know, remedios that you learn. Um, And in small communities, people do rally around whatever the infirmity is or the need is. So I have a cousin, for example, who has a very severe mental illness. And, you know, the community knows that he's different, and people rally around him. He's never been hospitalized. He's never been... um, you know, in jail or in in any way, and so I I grew up in a very rural environment, spent a lot of time with my grandparents, you know, they, you know, I I, I often say that um, they were uh, a community of chronic volunteers, right, and we never think about it that way, but, you know, if they needed something, my grandmother would cook, or my grandmother would go say prayers, or my grandmother would bring, you know, comida, or whatever it was, so... So I I grew up with a sense of belonging to a community and participating in whatever way you can, and really there was a very strong value of um, getting a good education, remembering where you came from, literally and figuratively, uh, and giving back. And uh, I had tremendous opportunities educationally, and uh, I was encouraged very much by my parents and my grandparents and aunts and uncles and... um, and so, uh, when I, you know, had a chance to go to school, I had mentors, and as all of us do, many of them open doors for you and see something in you that you might see in them. So I, I didn't really have aspirations to become a physician, um, but I love the sciences. I loved math. My father was a, uh, you know, worked for an aircraft company and did really fine math in terms of all these. Um, you know, uh, missiles and different things that they were building. And so we used to play these math games. And, you know, I I had a great affinity for that. Um, And then I, you know, had this incredible opportunity to go to Yale and uh, saw a lot of people who were on their way to medical school and had great professors who sort of encouraged me to go in that way. And um, so, you know, once I went to medical school, it was really clear to me that I needed to come back to community. I needed to give back I had this incredible opportunity to come to UCSF and do my training at San Francisco General Hospital very early in the HIV epidemic. Um, And that um, was a really transformative experience. I mean, you're in your 20s, there's no cure. You have people your own age that are, um, you know, friends and neighbors and people that you knew. and, um, And the hospital had an incredible esprit de corps for for taking care of the most vulnerable.
1: So you were in your early 20s when you became a resident at San Francisco General? I was
0: in my early 20s. Um, I graduated from college when I was 22 and uh, started medical school when I was 23. And so I, late 20s, came to, um, to San Francisco to UCSF. Um, it was a primary care program. And, um, you know, the patients we were seeing in primary care clinic were you know, could have been my Dios or Diaz or abuelas or brothers or, you know. Um, and so, you know, healthcare has always been very personal. It's a very personal calling. Mm-hmm. Um, I found, you know, uh, the community of, of physicians and of nurses and of social workers. I mean, it really was team-based care. I mean, we talk a lot about team-based care now, but San Francisco General really was organized that way.
1: And you're very recognized as an HIV and AIDS uh, specialist, and during this epidemic, you were a key figure in the um, response to this uh, epidemic, particularly as the AIDS director for the um, San Francisco Health Department. Yeah, that was
0: an incredible opportunity. I um, got out of residency and uh, I had always been interested in public health, but I, you know, medical school debt, and you want to get out there and make a living and make a contribution. So when I got invited to join the health department in the in the AIDS office, it was this incredible opportunity, both to serve and to learn. Um, and at that time, you know, we really were trying to figure out how do you respond to an epidemic of that nature? A lot of stigma, a lot of fear a lot of unknown, um, and, uh, and a community that, you know, had, um, both a lot of people with, who were uh, openly gay, who were struggling with HIV infection. Um, we, we were looking at, you know, injection drug use and how we could curtail HIV in, in that community and stopping bisexual transmission. Um, and most importantly, we weren't thinking about hospitals as the answer. I mean, we had a lot of patients in the hospital with HIV disease, but really we were thinking about how does a community respond?
1: Kind of going back to your own uh, history and your uh, childhood, that this was a mutual benefit community and it seems like you brought that leadership of mutual benefit to uh, the health department in response to an incredible disease that at that point had no uh, prevent, no prevention treatment. It was only... Prevention, And as people uh, figured out that it was sexually transmitted and also through injection drug use, um, there were very few tools then. Um, from a medical point of view, I, I bet as a profession, in, in terms of being a medical doctor, that must have been very challenging that you didn't have a medicine. Yeah, you
0: know, it's interesting because, you know, the very first tenet of public health is don't try to solve a problem for a community when you don't involve the community uh and so um you know there were many aids activists uh in the latino community and the gay community there was just a a large community of people who were trying to design solutions you know people used to say must be hard to work in the aids office i'm like no it's it's a place where you want to work where people are actually trying to think about what works do you do a telenovela do you how how do you get the information into communities and into families and We did a lot of in-service at clinics who would say, well, we don't have anybody with HIV disease. And you'd say, well, you know, why don't we do a luncheon series, and if nobody comes, great, and somebody comes, we'll educate them, and they'd be standing room only, right? There was just an incredible hunger in the community to understand, understand how it was transmitted, understand how to think about it, um, you know, how to care for their loved ones. And uh, and so... um, It was a very innovative time in public health because we were trying to, on the one hand, combat stigma. We were trying to promote testing because by the time I got into HIV, we we had an HIV test. That was huge because it was was a way to help you understand the epidemic and transmission and the epidemiology of it. And um, so, you know, we had a research arm. We had a surveillance arm. We had a lot of uh, community participation by physicians. Um, and it was a city that, you know, had good leadership, in, both in the community level and in the political arena. And um, um, so there were many, many things we tried. Some worked, some didn't. Um, uh, the science continued to evolve, a lot by virtue of advocacy. Um, and then, you know, the question was really, how do you get a delivery system ready to actually manage HIV once we did have antiretrovirals? And um, you know that was thinking about design, right? And right. and um, you know there were pushes for you know HIV centers versus thinking about really HIV and how you would manage it on an ongoing basis. Um, we were trying to think about the curriculum. We were trying to train people. Um, uh, it was a it was a um, it was a time when there was urgency. And uh, you have public health tools, and we tried to use all the public health tools we had available to us. Eventually, you know, we declared a state of emergency so we could, you know, legally distribute um, needles to injection drug users. We dramatically reduced hepatitis B. We dramatically reduced hep C. We dramatically reduced endocarditis. And we didn't have a big epidemic of heterosexual transmission because we did that. But we used the tools of public health to be able to do that. So it was a... uh, um, yeah, it was operating in an epidemic, so your you've you know your cortisol levels always running high, right? Um, and there were a lot of political interests in it, but um, um, on the whole, we developed a very thoughtful community-based, community-led delivery system that supported people emotionally, um, that supported them um, in death and dying, you know, we had a big HIV hospice, which I, I worked at for a period of time. I I learned a lot about, you know, the, 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 the real vision that people have for, okay, if I only have a month left, what will I do? People get real clear about what matters and what's important. And so it was, um, it was a painful period because so many people died. Um, But it was also, you know, something that left a lot of influence on me as a young physician working in public health and really thinking about, um, you know, how do you do the most that you can for the most? And and, and that really is, you know, ongoing work.
1: So a crisis of an epidemic um, brought you into a field um, as a physician, not only just providing care and support or. Uh, support through a hospice um, because, again, so many people died. But you also use the opportunity for a significant amount of policies that really has changed the trajectory of healthcare. Um, when you think about the fact that um, whether it's the needle access or it's, Ensuring that we are able to put a, um, a program and um, system of care that's integrated where all parts of the of, of someone's needs are taken care of in one location, um, it seemed that that was one of the directions that also has influenced you in the future of your work as it concerns universal health care.
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, first of all, when you're when you're responding to an epidemic, You don't want anybody outside of the system. You don't want anybody hiding. You don't want anybody who feels like they don't belong. Um, You don't want people showing up when they're, you know, um, at end stage pneumocystis in the emergency room and have never been tested. And that's where the importance of, from a public health point of view, saying when you develop a delivery system, everybody should be in it. That's just a core public health tenet, and the HIV epidemic made it so crystal clear to a young, you know, physician working in that space. Um, And and that's true whether you're talking about coronavirus or HIV. I mean, it it is true. You you want everybody in um, so that you can figure out, you know, how do you do testing and how do you do screening? And in in the case of HIV, how do you do, you know, um, content. Uh, contact notification. I mean, really, all of the tools of public health. When you're thinking about how you develop a delivery system, you want to make sure that everybody has access to it, and that you're giving people the right care in the right place at the right time, and doing it in a comprehensive manner. Like you're not just, you know, creating silos. And you know, the HIV epidemic could have lent itself to a lot of silos, but. For the most part, what we try to do is build infrastructure that was lasting infrastructure, whether it was HIV or Corona or whatever it is. So I, I learned a lot from thinking about how you design care at a time when there's a lot of stigma. And today, you know, I, I would say the epidemic we face today is the stigma associated with mental illness, right? We 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 built delivery systems that were fragmented. And we said, you know, we're going to take care of your serious mental illness over here and we're going to take care of your coronary disease and your diabetes and your, you know, whatever it is over there. And that doesn't work for people because people don't live their lives that way.
1: Well, we're not separated from mind and body. And no. we've talked about this in this podcast before, in which the systems of care have been um, developed separately, even the funding mechanisms, which kind of makes people stay in that lane. And I think what uh, you've taught us in San Francisco through the work and advocacy and leadership, um, policy leadership particularly, that, you know, really getting into building infrastructure institutions in the community to really respond, particularly to uh, negate the stigma. As you said, people need to be able to come in and they need to have people from their own communities reaching to them in their own languages and culture.
0: That's exactly right. I mean, you know, people talk a lot about quality of care. Um, you know, we live in an incredibly diverse state. And you can't talk about quality without talking about trust. And Because if, if you don't have a trusting relationship and a culturally sensitive one, whether it's language or beliefs or whatever it might be, you, you don't have a quality system. Um, yeah, there are a bunch of quality measures that delivery systems measure, but fundamentally for individuals and families, you want to have a delivery system that they can trust, that they can readily access. So the promotores and community health workers, which we used a lot of in HIV, because they were trusted. And they were in the community, and they were on the streets, and people knew them and and trusted the information they were providing. And um, so, you know, here we are today, you know, 30 years later, and really thinking about how do we fully incorporate promotores and community health workers in the delivery system to do prevention and outreach in a culturally appropriate way with trusted individuals and using protocols that allow you then to use the more... Um, you know, tertiary or specialty care as needed. But in in the situation we have now, we have not trained enough behavioral health workers. I'm sorry, we have an incredible workforce shortage. Um, And uh, we deinstitutionalized the mentally ill. We're supposed to create community alternatives. That never happened. The, The funding for that never really happened. So health departments have done it in partnership with other clinics and the like. But there are real deserts of care and uh, their family members desperately look for where can I take my child or my loved one to get the care they need, whether it's their first psychotic break or whether it's an acute depression or whether it's a responsive depression or whether it's some other serious mental illness. And-
1: well, what I learned in this field also was the um, types of services don't even exist in terms of somebody leaving the hospital from a psychotic break. There's very few, it's, I call it the Grand Canyon, it that is. there are very few insta- types of programs that can take people directly from the hospital to the next level. Now, they're developing those, whether those are urgent care centers or their board and cares, but there's a level of uh, medical need that's still needed as people uh, try to um, become more stable, but there's a missing piece there um, from the discharge from the hospital back into the community for uh, mental health issues. And I think San Francisco's done a good job, and they need to clearly do more, but it's really um, San Francisco is just a replicate of many, many communities um, throughout this country that don't even have what San Francisco has in terms of the level of care and the types of level of services. And it's an area that I think is so needed to be, become a better at providing care for people and also this whole issue of even providers in the communities where you have physicians who do not have that mental health background more today than yesterday, but how much more we need for the needs, for the needs of tomorrow.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and I think all that's true. And San Francisco is very much a beacon. I mean, there's been a lot of great leadership, yours, and and uh, really thinking about, you know, how do you integrate funding streams? Because you can't build these programs without funding streams. And funding stream comes, you know, typically very categorical. And so weaving all those together to create the bridges between acute care and the follow-on care you need to be able to stabilize people um but that you know we we have areas of the state where you know we don't have any psychiatric uh, capabilities.
1: And would you say that lines up with universal health care as well?
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, we passed, you know, mental health parity um uh, which in in theory should be, you know, we should have parity to what? To you know somebody who's fully covered in commercial coverage with, you know, full benefits. I would argue that should be the standard. Um in large part because we get a ton of lost productivity. Uh, and, you know, people with serious mental illness on average die 25 years earlier from physical health conditions um, because of a lack of integration of services and a lack of community services that are available to kind of meet the range of public health needs we need, we need in, in behavioral health. So I, I, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from what we did in the HIV days Um, because acute care has its place. Um, The most acute people are acutely suicidal. You do want a place where you can stabilize them, but people fundamentally don't get better in acute psychiatric wards.
1: And we do want to say that people can have recovery and they can lead pretty stable lives and work and have family um, and be happy. And I think that that's kind of the notion that I don't think many people see because they don't, we don't really embrace it in the community that you know we do have people with mental illness who live next to us who um, function very well, and a lot of it is that community support, the medical support, the mental health support, and in many communities they do not have that. You have that complication of uh, addiction as well, and we do want to say that there's a large group of people that have both mental health and addiction, and many times the addiction comes as a way to help them feel better um, from the lack of care, um, and then it gets a life on its own.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you if you have a serious mental illness, it's easier to find meth than it is to get good cognitive behavioral therapy in a culturally competent setting.
1: And that says a lot. Yeah.
0: And, and so you know, we end up with these you know, individuals who then ha- have multiple complex conditions because we've not treated the underlying one. We don't catch it early. Um, we're not screening early. Um, and when we do screen, we have no place to send them. So I, I think it's both a workforce issue, it's a funding issue, it's a stigma issue. Um,
1: and, and mental
0: illness is very prevalent in our community.
1: So tell us, you know, you um, were part of the of really uh, looking at this epidemic of HIV and AIDS. And now you're seen as a CEO of a major policy group, the mental health issues. Talk to the audience and myself about how you take something from a concept of a policy and you move it into action as you did with the HIV and AIDS epidemic. Tell us a little bit what you're doing around that.
0: Yeah. So, so it's interesting, you know, when you're in public health and you're doing public service you really do need advocates and you need people testing new ideas and you need people thinking about the evidence behind what works. Maybe not in California, maybe someplace else. Um, So, you know, after 15 years in public health, when I moved to philanthropy, I really became, you know, I appreciated at public health hearings where, you you know, advocates would come and say, gee, you know, the director of health is not doing you know fill in the blank you're not doing lead screening for kids or whatever it is and then you you're you have an accountability to go and figure that out um and i remember being director of health when a national philanthropy came to me and said you know do you want to do something we think you could do something on high utilizers in the emergency room and i remember being somewhat skeptical thinking really what w- what would that be <laughs> And truth is they had tested some ideas and we ended up doing a lot of supportive housing in San Francisco as a result in part of some things that had been tested and funded by philanthropy. And so I think that's an important role for organized policy entities who are not in government um, and but who appreciate civil mm-hmm. servants and public servants who are working inside very constrained environments relatively underpaid in relationship to you know other sectors for sure, commercial sectors and the like. Um, and, and so with that appreciation and that respect, because I think you have to pay respect to people who are doing really hard stuff, mm-hmm. um, and these jobs in public service are, are demanding personally and professionally, and, and they're rewarding. Um, but, but they... Um, and so I think they're improved... Um, by advocates who are bringing good policy ideas and good research and can test certain things in different communities. I mean, California is a huge state. We do a lot of demonstrations on the coast because we got all the universities public and uh, otherwise. And then inland, we don't have those kinds of beacons of ideas and the like. And so part of what California healthcare foundation does is sort of think about the rural areas and how do you get telepsych into Yolo County?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, How can you partner with some of the Medicaid plans? I mean, we created a Medicaid plan in San Francisco in the early days of Medi-Cal Managed Care. And um, I remember when we designed it at the time, it was for mom and kids. Now, you know, that program is serving 13 million people in the state. And in some places it works pretty well and in other places it doesn't. But I think what the foundation can do is test ideas and fund pilots, understand what makes them work, get parties that might not work together into a room, uh, try to develop a common agenda. Because as you know, people, as imperfect as these systems are, people get very wedded to their niche. Somebody else needs to change, not me. Mm -hmm. And so part of what philanthropy does and CHCF works a lot on is trying to get unusual partners to come into the room and solve problems, not unlike what we did in the early days of the HIV epidemic.
1: Well, I don't want to understate the the issue of supportive housing and how you brought that into the health department and, in fact, hired a housing director who developed supportive housing um, that really has um, expanded now, not so much under the health department, but under the city as a whole, showing that people can live in a supportive environment um, who have major um, illnesses, including mental illness and addiction. Um, and if they're under care and in the process of recovery, that they can do much better in a house than they can do on the streets or even in a shelter.
0: Yeah. I mean, we, um, you know, we used to see these patients very, um, chronically homeless, typically uh, not very much social support whatsoever. They'd come in for, you know, venous ulcers or for vasculitis or for whatever it might be. we Stabilize them, and then we'd give them a voucher to go to an SRO hotel for three days and wonder why they didn't come back to primary care and to nutrition clinic and the diabetes clinic and all the other places we sent them to. Of course, they're not going to show up. And so it occurred to me that, in effect, we were housing uh, individuals even after we'd medically stabilized them, and there must be a better way to do it. And I didn't know anything about how to do our affordable housing. And so, in a mayoral transition, we had an opportunity to go and get somebody who knew something about affordable housing, and I, I, it, was a, it was a complete lark. I, I said to the then-incoming mayor, you know, I want him to come to the health department. He goes, well, he's a housing guy. I go, I know. Right. <laughs> We're in the housing business somewhat. And uh, we piloted and at the time took over a number of SRO hotels and cleaned them up. And the most important thing about that is the dignity of people living in stable housing where we didn't expect them to navigate our complex system, we were taking services to them, as these are some of our most vulnerable citizens, arguably, and residents. And um, the notion that they should come and try to figure out, you know, how to register and how to get to this appointment and to that appointment. Supportive housing allowed them to be stably housed and therefore bring services, intensive case management, management, primary care docs, to actually stabilize them. And we ended up not seeing them in the emergency room, and they weren't just sort of cycling in and out. And um, we developed a lot of supportive housing. And everybody knows, by the way, that model works. Absolutely. You have to scale it, and you have to do services right. But
1: there's been plenty of research to show. Research has been proven.
0: Right. These are people that would be in our... It costs millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. They'd be in our jails, cycling in and out of jails, um, in and out of our ICUs, and a much more dignified life for them and better
1: for the system overall. And I just wanted to emphasize again, you know, the thoughts of policy being so separated out from action and um, that they're just thoughts. And here in this situation, you really took on an idea a policy statement that somebody said that we could do better in, in housing people. And you took that and ran with it. And, uh, and now you're on the policy side. Mm-hmm. And so is it fast enough for you? Are you feeling like you are able to really push those policy issues as you did as a, maybe as a provider as well?
0: You know, um, uh, I, I do think that by virtue of, if you will growing up as a professional in the midst of an AIDS epidemic, um, you always have a sense of urgency, and I've never lost that sense of urgency. So, you know, you can think and do research and write policy papers and do pretty graphics and do pretty PowerPoints. At the end of the day, you've got to ask yourself, did you make a difference in somebody's lives? Have you made the system better in YOLO? Have you made the system better in, you know, Sacramento or in Fresno or in Modesto or in places where... Um, you don't have the kind of resources that we have in San Francisco. Right. And so one of the beauties of this job, I haven't lost the urgency, but it, is, it does allow me to look at the state, which is a very diverse state. Um, you know, I've got cousins in Southern California that are on Medi-Cal. Um, again, all health care is deeply personal, and I don't necessarily try to improve the Medi-Cal program just for them, but I, it is always ever-present in my mind that there is somebody who's got a loved one, they have a Medi card, and our job is to try to figure out how to make that card give them access to the care they need and they want.
1: And that's why you have, uh, I think, been a, a real great advocate in our country about ensuring that people get health care, not only from even your beginnings of seeing a mutual community supporting each other, but you really have taken those values and really pushed into your professional career. And it, it's something to um, to really be, um, I think, very proud of Dr. Hernandez. And well,
0: I hope my grandmother would be proud. I
1: think she would be. <laughs> Absolutely, she would be. Um, so as someone who is working on improving healthcare on a daily basis, what can you share with our listening audience about what's keeping us from universal healthcare access? So this is a big issue today with the presidential conversations. You've been doing it. Um, why can't the rest of the country get it together to do this?
0: You know, it's a really good question, Barb. Um, uh, in some ways, if if we think about the problems we're trying to solve from the perspective of a patient, I mean, people call them consumers, I still think of them as patients. And um, uh, I, I remember early in my residency, I was taking care of a, a young woman uh, who uh, was undocumented. Um, she had polycystic kidney disease, and um, at the time, the policy of the health department was to do dialysis when they were in acute renal failure. If you were undocumented, you were entitled to acute dialysis, not chronic dialysis. And I remember being- it's y- a
1: difference in quality of care.
0: Oh, absolutely. And in risk and in costs. Uh, essentially, you wait till a patient gets encephalopathic and then do acute emergency dialysis, more expensive, more risky, and- that was the first real moment where I said, that, that just is not, A, it's inhumane, um, B, that's not who we were as a health department in a city, C, I was a physician, so I felt like I needed to be her advocate, and I didn't know who set those policies. And so that was my first real, I, I use that to ground me often, because if we don't actually keep in mind why we're doing what we're doing with a real clear eye to who it is we are trying to improve things for. You can do a lot of policies, papers, you can do a lot of conferences, you can do all of that. Um, the, the blessing that I had as a clinician was be able to look at people and really understand how policies impacted them. And part of um, you know that sense of grounding, if you will, is has just always stayed with me, right? There, there is a reason why we are doing this work, and if you look around in the state of California, there are people living under freeways, and there are people living in doorstops, and there are people dying in alleys, and um, and uh, all of that in my mind is remediable, right? But for political will, and so part of my job is to be, with the credentials and experience that I have garnered and had, you know, the blessing to be able to. Uh, uh, achieve to really make sure that the policies that we're uh, working to implement and to execute are actually making a difference in people's lives. And, um, you know, the reason that I think it's so hard, seemingly, to do what seems so straightforward in some ways is, number one, we make it too complicated. We should be simplifying, not making more complicated. And, And one of the things that happens with policies is we lay a one on another. We don't ever step back and say, what did we design here? And does it really still make sense?
1: Sometimes it's because the policymakers have never done it.
0: They've never executed it, right? Mm-hmm. They've never been on the ground Not trying to figure out how to make- Exactly right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, um, um, I think um, um, there's no reason why everybody in this country shouldn't be covered. Period. Full stop. Everybody should be covered. I
1: think that's a great um, goal
0: for yeah. us. And and coverage should lead to access. It is not good enough to have an insurance card. That's right. If nobody will use it, or it doesn't allow you to get in to see the kind of clinician that you need when you need it.
1: Very good, Doctor Hernandez. How? What? Any other thoughts and comments you'd like to make for the podcast today?
0: Well, I'm a I'm a diehard optimist, Barbara. And so I, I look at the future and think: a, um, a lot of great young talent coming in who see systems, see the connection between, you know, healthcare and climate and the environment and water quality. And um, so I'm I'm incredibly optimistic about a generation that's stepping forward and saying this stuff isn't right, does not working well. Um, so that's one. I'm, I'm just deeply optimistic about that. And two, um, you know, we have new administration in the state and they're thinking bold ideas. And I like bold ideas, but I like bold action more. And so if I can make those ideas real, I'm in.
1: All right. Well, I also am an optimist and I'm um, even so in the aspect of the doors you've opened up for many people. So I really want to thank you for your service. You've done an incredible job for the state of California and for the country and anybody that would uh, know of your work would want to tap you for that kind of national perspective on universal healthcare access and i think that uh, somebody like you is uh, so incredibly important for particularly the latino community and in, uh, not only um your parents would be proud and your grandparents would be proud, but we're also very proud of you. So I want to thank you so much for coming on uh, healthcare untold. I know that you'll be another guest and we'll get into the issue of border crisis and healthcare there. And I want to save that for another podcasts and want to intrigue people to kind of check in on that next podcast. So I want to thank Dr. Sandra Hernandez for being with us at healthcare untold. And thank you for your many years of service and contributions to the health of our communities. And thank you for listening today. Send us comments, thoughts to this podcast at healthcareuntold untold 2020 at gmail.com healthcare untold 2020 at gmail. Again, we want to thank Dr. Sandra Hernandez, CEO, President of the California Health Foundation, and also a shout out to Gerardo Sandoval, Dr. G, for his production and technical support. Until next time, healthcare untold.